Last week we talked about a man named Nicodemus who came to Jesus under the cover of darkness, looking, uh, searching for that something more he believed Jesus could offer him. This morning in what is the longest recorded conversation between Jesus and another person in all of Scripture, we meet a nameless Samaritan woman when she encounters Jesus at the wedding, really seems to be looking for nothing at all. In fact, it may be that she comes to the well in the middle of the day out of a desire to avoid any encounters with other human beings. So I suggest to you, not only is she not searching for anything, but she seems quite surprised when she finds this stranger, this Jew, this man, this Jesus at her well, asking her for a drink of water, the water she's come to draw. Here again her story, which perhaps in some ways is your story as well. He came to a Samaritan city called Sychar which was near the land Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus was tired from his journey, so he sat down at the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me some water to drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy him some food. The Samaritan woman asked, Why do you, a Jewish man, ask something to drink from me? A Samaritan woman. Jews and Samaritans didn't associate with each other. Jesus responded, If you recognize God's gift and who is saying to you, Give me some water to drink, you would be asking him, and he would be giving you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you don't have a bucket and the well is deep. Where would you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave this well to us and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give will never Again. The water that I give will become in those who drink it a spring of water that bubbles up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty and will never need to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, get your husband and come back here. The woman replied, I don't have a husband. You're right to say I don't have a husband, Jesus answered. You have had five husbands, and the man you are with now isn't your husband. You've spoken the truth. The woman said, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you and your people say that it is necessary to worship in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you and your people will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. 
You and your people worship what you don't know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But the time is coming, and it's here. The true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. The Father looks for those who worship in this way. God is spirit, and it is necessary to worship God in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will teach everything to us. Jesus said to her, I am the one who speaks with you. Just then, Jesus' disciples arrived and were shocked that he was talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking to her? The woman put down her water jar and went into the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who has told me everything I've done. Could this man be the Christ? They left the city and went on their way to see Jesus. In the meantime, the disciples spoke to Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples asked each other, Someone brought him food? Jesus said to them, I am fed by doing the will of the one who sent me, and by completing his work. Don't you have a saying, four more months and then it's time for the harvest? Look, I tell you, open your eyes and notice that the fields are already ripe for the harvest. Those who harvest are receiving their pay and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that those who sow and those who harvest can celebrate together. This is a true saying that one sows and another harvests. I have sent you to harvest what you didn't work for. Others worked hard and you were sharing their hard work. Many Samaritans in that city believed in Jesus because of the woman's word and she testified. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, We no longer believe because of what you said, but we have heard for ourselves and know that this is that this one is truly the Savior of the world. May God have his blessing to this reading. It's a fascinating story and a long passage of scripture to read. But it's a story that is rich, I think, with meaning and with lessons around which a sermon could be built. But this morning I want to focus on what it teaches us about faith, if you will. Not faith so much as a belief or an intellectual assent to a series of propositions about God or about Jesus, but rather faith as something deeper, more life-changing. Faith that is active and alive in us. Faith that has the power to transform us. Faith as trust in a living God that allows us to become more and more the people God created us to be. And I also want to talk to you a little about what it teaches us about Jesus. Of course, for some of us, the first stumbling block right away on our journey to the well, if you will, 
on our road to meeting Jesus is this idea, this notion of faith as trust. Some of you trust easily, perhaps too easily. I know that's my concern as a parent, that Hunter is one of these children who trust very easily, as I'm sure many of yours do as well. And I'm always worried about him trusting the wrong person and somehow ending up with a, encountering someone who might actually do him harm. And so I, I struggle with how do you instill in him a healthy fear of the stranger without also creating an innate distrust of others. An example that comes to mind most recently is uh, sort of, uh, has to do with a, a game that's played interactively online called Roblox. And uh, where is a uh, Cecilia? Anyway, I think she may have put it on. She may have been the one that put this this article on Facebook. But I read an article on Facebook the other day that talked about it in this, this game Roblox, which seems innocent enough, but the people, the characters are able to communicate with other people who are playing the game. And apparently, it's one of those situations where it's supposed to be for people 13 and under, but pedophiles pose as children and are therefore a danger to those who are playing. So I've had to tell Hunter that he can no longer play one of his favorite games, and of course he wants to negotiate that and renegotiate that each week with a new bit of information he's gleaned from some YouTube video or from some kid at school, and I just, I've got to keep standing my ground. But it's that balancing act between trying to explain to him that not everybody in the world is as good as the people around him, and that he could be hurt by them, but I don't want him to become distrustful. Because I think so many of us already have such a hard time trusting. Because we're just the opposite of Hunter and our other kids. Over the course of our lifetime, we somehow learn not to trust. Maybe we experience in our lifetime extreme betrayal or abuse at the hand of someone we love or perhaps someone near to those we love. Maybe it's hardship or hurt that, that has left it difficult for us to trust fully other people. And sometimes that lack of trust, that inability to trust others extends even into our relationship with God, does it not? Maybe it's the church that's caused that. Or other Christians who've left us skeptical of God and the church, of Jesus, and therefore slow to trust. Or maybe it's a family member or a close friend who did or didn't do something, or an ex-partner or an ex-spouse. We do harm to each other in numerous ways, and so many of you in this room have been hurt, I know. I have the Christians, I have the churches who rejected you simply for being the child of God, God created you to be. And so maybe for that reason, it's hard for you to fully trust. Whatever the reason, I think so many of us, myself included, tend to erect these walls that are intended to protect us from being hurt again. 
But when we erect those walls, they become barriers to a life lived fully in a loving relationship with a grace-filled, merciful God. They, they, they become barriers that keep us from enjoying the love we can share with other Christians. They affect our faith. I mean, because when you put up those walls that are impermeable, walls meant to protect, it's not like you can just flip a switch and let them down one day and put them back up and, you know what I'm saying? Trust. Trust is something I think so many of us struggle with on a really basic level. And that lack of trust of others eventually impacts our trust, our ability to trust in God. Yet if we're ever truly to encounter a living, loving God, we have to find ways to dismantle those walls, those barriers that keep us from a full relationship with others, with ourselves, and yes, with God. We have to find more ways, we have to find ways to be more vulnerable, especially with God. And I think that in some ways that was the story of this woman at the well. I mean, think about it. Why else would she come to draw water at the hottest part of the day when the sun was at its apex? Was she afraid of the judgment of others? Of their sidelong glances and hushed whispers? Their ability to look past her as if she weren't even there? Were those some of the things that kept her at a distance from other people? Now, we don't know the particulars of her story. We can assume some things from the things that Jesus says. But Jesus does tell us enough for us to know that her life had obviously not been an easy Divorce, perhaps five times, abandoned. And now dependent on a man who is not even her husband, I think you can probably safely assume that her life had been hard, maybe even tragic. So I'm guessing she's more than a little weary of this one she encounters that day, this one who has invaded her a long time at the well, a Jew, a man who is asking her a Samaritan for a drink of water. I suspect she would have preferred to ignore him, to ignore him just as so many others had ignored her. But that didn't happen, did it? Because that's not who Jesus is and that's not the way he works. So he approaches her, I think, from a position of vulnerability himself. Yes, he's a stranger, a man, a Jew, and he's breaking rules even in talking to her. And he breaks these rules in order to ask her for help. He solicits a bit of water on a hot, sun-parched day. And it is perhaps this vulnerability on his part that allows her to open up. Just a bit. 
allows you to let that guard down and to experience the whole in a way that will forever change who she is. Jesus begins by asking her for a drink of water, but he ends up offering her so. I think it's important to notice here in this passage that Jesus does not judge or condemn her. He also doesn't ask her to repent of her sin, which I find interesting given that this passage falls smack dab in the middle of Lent, a season of repentance. But that's not in the story, is it? I find it particularly interesting that that, that he names, he acknowledges the things about her that he knows, but he does so in a way that is not in any way condescending or judgmental. He merely sees her for who she is, and he values her enough to engage her in conversation. You know, all of us have things in our life, past or present, that could get, that do, can and do get in our way, in the way of our relationship with God. But look at this passage and see what Jesus does and doesn't do. He engages her, he treats her as a person of worth, and he does so without ever condemning her for the mistakes of her past or the sins of her husband. That's huge. It's not what she was used to. Certainly not what she was expecting. And I think because he didn't, it allowed her to drop those walls a little more. And to be able to hear about this living water he had to offer. He recognizes that the change names her challenges, conveys to her that she matters, that she's a person of worth, that she is not indeed invisible. And then he offers her a better way. It's one of the things I love most about Jesus. He meets us where we are, wherever that is, and offers us or invites us into a relationship with God that is truly life So many of us have had experiences with other Christians or in the church that have been anything but life giving, have we not? Rules. You gotta do it this way. If you don't do it that way, then there's something wrong with you. Judgments, condemnations that robbed us of life. But Jesus does none of that. He offers us this life-giving relationship with the God who meets us where we are and accepts us as we are. And to me, that's huge. 
God isn't interested in some big, inauthentic version of ourselves that we often present to the world. God wants to meet the real us, the imperfect, the flawed us, the one with the past we'd rather forgive and the stuff in the present that we're still trying to work through. It's not about should and shouldn'ts or oughts and ought nots, but about relationship, about letting down those walls and letting God in. Living water, not still, stagnant, focusing on what has been. Living water that gives us new life, that has the power to transform us. It's like a mountain stream that slowly flows over a, 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 through the creek bed, and over time it erodes and it changes the very creek bed that it's flowing through. Living water. God's Spirit has the power to change who we are. And if you notice it in this story, by the end, this woman is completely different from the one that Jesus first encountered at that well. When he arrived there that day and the woman came up, she came with in the middle of the day when she knew no one else would be there. Why? Because she was ashamed. She was beaten down. She was rejected. She didn't want to interact with anyone. By the end of the story, this same woman is running back to her village to the same people she had been trying to avoid and telling everybody she met about this Jesus who knew everything she did and still loved her and offered her this living water, this relationship with God. This Jew offered to her a Samaritan. Why giving relationship with their common God? Isn't that how it works with us? When we encounter the living Christ, truly encounter Christ, when we let those walls down, when we make them a little more permeable, and allow God into our lives, we are not left unchanged. The living water Jesus speaks of as the power to transform us. The power to make us into the whole people God always intended us to be. The people God created us to be. The people created in God's whole Thanks be to God for stories like this, who introduce us and remind us of a God who loves us and wants nothing more than a real, authentic, living relationship. Thank you.